What comes to your mind when I say, do you remember the time? Today, I'm wearing a tie. And quite interestingly, many people have observed and actually commented about my tie. Um, partially because I don't remember the last time I wore a tie. Um, but also some people have been feeling spiritually intimidated by my tie. If you can't see it, it says, I love Jesus. Um, and some thought I was feeling very spiritual today. But uh, like I said, I don't remember when last I've worn a tie. But I do remember one time when I was wearing this particular tie. I wore this tie on the 13th of August, 2006. And why I know the date so specifically, it's because it was the Thursday before Good Friday of that year. I was working at Standard Bank Constantia at the time. And I, I went to the pick and pay to buy myself something to eat at the deli there. In those days, the deli used to be right at the back wall. Um, the counter was there. And the guy served me, and he noticed my tie. It's a very noticeable tie. He noticed my tie, and he said, oh, I see your tie says, I love Jesus. He says, do you know when Jesus was born? Now, you must remember, this was before I'd been to seminary, but I always had a love and a passion for the Bible, for church history and the history of Christianity. And I, Nochal, did know, more or less, when Jesus was born. And I was going to tell him that I did know. I said, actually, you know, most people think Jesus was born in the year zero. But it's more likely that Jesus was born somewhere between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. And so I told this guy this, and I felt quite chuffed. I got my whatever I got from him, and I walked away. And then that feeling of feeling chuffed actually waned very quickly. Because I realized that I had told this guy when Jesus was born. But I lost a huge opportunity to share with him why Jesus was born. And today, as we observe Holy Communion, as we observe the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, or just simply communion, I don't want us to focus on when or how often we have communion. Actually, the very observant among you might know today is not even a day we're supposed to have communion. But I don't want us to focus on the when and the, the how often or why there are so many different names even for communion. Or even what we use as emblems to remind us of the body and blood of Jesus. I want us today to remember, as we've been focusing on Jesus, this King of Kings, to remember the why we take part in communion. And I'd love for our worship after this to come in response to the why. And the answer is quite simple. And again, so we two for two in the services so far this morning. In both services, the worship leaders have confirmed the message today. Earlier on, Janet said, remembering Jesus. The answer is quite simple. That's the why of communion. We do this to remember Jesus. What do you remember about Jesus? Or what do you think about Jesus when we have communion? If this sermon was a short movie or a play, it would have five scenes. And the scenes are going to flash in front of your eyes. You know when you have those movies, the movie opens up and it will say B.C. 1300. This is where this movie starts. You might know the story. God commands Moses to confront Pharaoh. And 
about letting God's people go out of Egypt. And you have this conflict of wills between Pharaoh and between Moses. It results in nine plagues. And Pharaoh still doesn't agree to let God's people go. So God brings about the tenth and the most fearsome of those plagues. God decrees that every firstborn of offspring in Egypt would die that night. Unless their homes were covered by the blood of a lamb. Now there was a lot of preparation that had to go into that process. It was a very specific lamb that had to be cared for in a specific way, that had to be slaughtered on a specific day, and that the blood of that lamb must be put on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses. And if they obeyed, only if they obeyed God's specific instructions, the firstborn in that home would be saved. It affected every home in Egypt, from Pharaoh's home to every other home, the firstborn offspring died. But the houses where a lamb had been sacrificed and the blood had been painted on the doorposts, in those homes, everyone was saved. In chapter 12 of Exodus, the Lord says to Moses that the Israelites must remember what would become the most significant event in Old Testament history, the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. They need to remember it by making and having this Passover meal every single year. Scene 2 takes us 1,300 years into the future. John the baptizer, or John the Baptist, is busy preparing the way for Jesus. And people ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's coming to save us? And he says, no, I've come to prepare the way. And I didn't know this I realized this as I was reading through John 1. You think you read it, it's one chapter, it's a few verses. One verse after the next, you think this thing is happening, one thing after the next. But this happened over three days. On one day they asked John, are you the one? He says, no, I'm preparing the way. The next day, John 1 verse 29, John sees Jesus walking towards him and he says these words, Look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That happens on the second day. And then the following day, the next day, John is standing with two of his own disciples and he sees Jesus walks by. And again he says, look, this is the Lamb of God. That was roughly in about AD 26. You remember? Do you remember 1,300 years before that? That there was a specific animal that needed to be sacrificed? A lamb. And it was the blood of the lamb that saved the Israelites. And John says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I want you to fast forward about three and a half years after that. Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry. Him and his disciples are planning to have this very Passover meal that God commanded Moses to have. And again, amazingly, Janet read from Mark 14. In Mark 14 verse 12, It says, killing the Passover lamb was customary on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. And there was a period of preparation. You remember Jesus sent some of his disciples to go and find a room where they could go and have this meal. And there was preparation for the venue. You know when you plan an event, you need to sort out the venue. Venue was sorted. Next thing you need to sort out is food. Food was sorted. They needed to sort out the lamb, the bread, and the wine. And even Jesus' own preparation for what was going to be happening the next day. You'll remember in that earlier in that chapter, there was the woman who anointed Jesus 
with expensive perfume in preparation for his crucifixion and his burial. And then we read in Luke chapter 22 verse 19, and I don't know if any of the disciples even remembered those words that John the Baptist said, Luke the Lamb of God. But Jesus says in Luke's account of that supper, Luke chapter 22 verse 19, then Jesus took the bread and he spoke a prayer of thanksgiving. He broke the bread, gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given up for you. Do this to remember me. It goes on and Matthew's account says in 26 verse 27, then he took the cup and he spoke a prayer of thanksgiving and he gave it to them and said, drink from it all of you. This is my blood, the blood of promise. It is poured out for many people so that sins are forgiven. That redeemer that we've been praying about, that, that, that savior that we've been singing about today, it's his blood that was going to be poured out that very next day. Scene four brings us about 26 years after that. Now we know what happened after that night that Jesus was betrayed. He was crucified. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. 26 years later brings us, incidentally, to where we are at as a church at the moment in the book of First Corinthians. We come to this letter that we've been looking at for the past few months. And for those who remember, myself and Brad over the last two weeks finished the section that covers chapters 8, 9, and 10, which was mostly about food, specifically meat sacrificed to idols. And as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul continues to deal with issues that they have in the church, particularly issues pertaining to their weekly worship gathering. He starts by praising them for always thinking about him and by carefully following the traditions that he had handed down to them. And then he starts a section that for some people has become quite controversial. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, he says, I want you to realize that Christ has authority over every man. A husband has authority over his wife and God has authority over Christ. And what Paul goes on to say after that has been interpreted differently by different people. And even among our pastors, among our elders, and even our members, there's a diversity of views. And so as we were addressing this and and deciding how are we going to approach this, uh, there, there were a few ways we could do it. Either I could, in the time given to me, address all the possible interpretations and applications, or we could give people with different views an opportunity to share theirs. But with the time that I've got available to me today, and the fact that we've decided to go one chapter for one week as we've been going through this book, we've decided to rather put together a list of resources that explains the various views, and we'll make that available to you in the coming week, to allow you to do what First Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 13 actually says, Paul says to them, judge the situation for yourselves, whether it's right for a woman to pray and to speak with her head uncovered. And so Paul continues to address the issue of how they've been conducting themselves as they've been gathering weekly. Specifically, he starts reprimanding them for the way that they've been actually going on as they take part 
in the Lord's Supper. They've been creating divisions, which again as seems to be a theme in First Corinthians. They've also been overindulging. Some were eating too much, some were drinking too much at the communion meal. Others were eating without waiting for others to arrive. Don't you just hate when that happens? <laughs> and then he continues to remind them why they have communion, as well as how to do communion in a way that is meaningful. And today, for literally just a few minutes, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 24 to 28. And I want to point out something that I'm hoping is going to be a challenge for all of us. You remember, we've been reading through, as we go through 1 Corinthians, the pastors have kept going back to Acts chapter 18, because it gives us the backstory to the Corinthian church. It explains to us how Paul went about his ministry when he was in Corinth for a period of about 18 months. And they seem to be meeting at the home of a guy by the name of Justice, who incidentally lived right next to the synagogue. You'll remember they moved there after the Jews started insulting and opposing what Paul was teaching about Jesus being the Messiah. And as I read that, I realized they didn't have communion in a church building like we do. Because there were no church buildings. Where were they meeting? They were meeting in homes. And as we move through verses 24 to 28, I would like to challenge you to fast forward to scene 5, A.D. 2023. You and me, and how and why we do communion. Let's apply what Paul teaches in a way that not only sets the scene for us taking part today and then worshiping in response afterwards, but let's take part in a way that, that even sets an example, maybe teaches us and trains us so that we can continue if we're already doing it or maybe start if we're not doing it. Having communion in our homes with our families. Having communion in our life groups or whatever small group context we find ourselves in. Because if anything, that is much closer to the biblical model of communion than what we do today. And so I've literally got four quick points as to how to do communion. And I put it in brackets, at home. And firstly, give thanks. I don't know if you picked it up. When Jesus had that last supper with his disciples, he gave thanks. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, I'll read from verse 23 actually, After all, I passed unto you what I had received from the Lord. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and spoke a prayer of thanksgiving. He broke the bread and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. When supper was over, he did the same with the cup. This cup is the new promise made with my blood. Jesus gave thanks. Do you remember? Do you remember another time when Jesus gave thanks? It was a day there was a multitude of people, at least 5,000 men. And there wasn't enough food. Andrew found this little boy that had the five loaves of bread and the two fish. And Jesus says, bring it. And a miracle was about to happen. But you know what happened before the miracle? Jesus gave thanks. Doesn't that seem backwards? Don't you first receive the miracle and then say, Thank you, Lord, for the miracle? But no. 
All of this happened the night Jesus was betrayed, the day before he was going to be crucified, the day before the biggest miracle of all, the most significant event. We spoke about the Passover being the most significant event in the Old Testament. Jesus' resurrection was the most significant event in the New Testament, the most significant miracle, and it was preceded by thanksgiving. What are you trusting God for? What's the miracle that you've been waiting for or praying for? Give thanks in advance. Give thanks first. Give thanks in faith. Give thanks in anticipation. As we come to this table, let us give thanks. Secondly, and from those same verses, let us remember Jesus. What did Jesus say? It's highlighted in the the next slide after that. When Jesus said, eat this and drink this, you do this to remember me. Every time we take part in this communion table, we remember what Jesus did for us and what it accomplished for us. But then in verse 26, verse 26 says, every time you eat the bread and drink from this cup, you tell about the Lord's death until he comes. Taking part is a witness. It's a testimony. It's telling others what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 3, I passed on to you the most important points of doctrine that I have received. Christ died to take away our sins as the scriptures predicted. He was placed in a tomb. He was brought back to life on the third day as the scriptures predicted predicted. Every single time we take part, we tell others about the Lord's death and what it's done for me, what it's done for us. Then lastly, as we look at verse 27 and verse 28, and this is an important part, and again, Paul reprimands the church because he says, you are approaching this haphazardly. You need to search your heart. You need to examine yourself. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks from the Lord's cup in an improper way will be held responsible for the Lord's body and blood. With this in mind, individuals must determine what, that what they are doing is proper when they eat the bread and drink the cup. You know how a doctor will examine you when something's wrong? He might send away blood or urine to be tested to find out what's actually wrong. Paul is saying that when we come to this table, we need to open up our hearts and say, Lord, search my heart with the magnifying glass of your Holy Spirit. The psalmist says it in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Every time we come to this table, Paul says we need to search our hearts. We need to examine our hearts. I think the first thing to search our hearts is, am I a child of God? The beautiful thing about our church is that this table is not a Baptist table. You might not even be Baptist and you are here, you can take part. It's actually not even the table of Connect Church. 
You don't even need to be a member. All you need to be is a child of God. And so the first examination I need to do is I need to ask, have I admitted that I'm a sinner? Have I received God's forgiveness? Do I believe that Jesus died for me in my place? And have I committed my life to Him? That's the first test. But then the second test is, am I living a life that's worthy of this gospel that has saved me? And so I'm going to ask that we take a moment or two to search our hearts as we prepare to eat and to drink together. After we've taken a moment or two, I'm going to ask those who have been asked to assist with the serving to come to the front. Then I'm going to ask Byron Hanslow to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Thanking God not only for the emblems that have been prepared, but thanking God for Jesus' blood and what it has done for us, what it has accomplished for us, and the freedom that we have as a result. I'm going to ask that at that time, after Biden's prayer, that the worship team comes to the front. They're going to lead us in a song as the bread and the juice is passed around. And can I ask you to keep the bread and to keep the juice until everyone has received, so that we can eat and drink together, symbolically signifying the unity that Paul was complaining, actually there's divisions among you. Let's eat and drink together this morning. And then I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in our time of worship and praise as we respond in song to what the blood has achieved for us. So let's take a few moments to search our hearts, examine ourselves, and then I'm going to ask Byron to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Father, we thank you that there is nothing that separates us from you, God. Father, for what you have done for each and every one of us, Lord, let this be a moment where we sit in your presence. And we draw closer to you. And we remember the things that you have done for us, Lord. Thank you for the sacrifice that you have made. Thank you that you poured out your, your blood for us. That your blood was shed. And that the curtain tore in two. And we have access mm. to you, Heavenly Father. That you have allowed us to be called your children. Your sons. Your daughters. And Lord, that you love us all unconditionally, Lord. Thank you for everything that you give us, that you provide for us. Thank you for this church. And thank you for each and every person that's sitting here today, Lord. Thank you for the individual work that you are doing in all of our lives. Father, may we be reminded of the small things that we forget, Lord. May we remember that as we step out, Lord, that you are with us that you are in us, mm. and that you are for us. Mm. So, Father, by your Spirit, Lord, may this be a moment for us individually where we sit in your presence as we take of this bread and of this juice, Lord, that we remember and this becomes personal mm. for each and every one of us here this morning, Lord. <coughs> Father, we thank you, we honor you, and we bless your holy name. Amen. We're going to be eating and drinking together in unity, reflecting on what we have received.
through the cross. Forgiveness, grace and mercy. And that's not just forgiveness and grace and mercy to receive and keep. That we share with others. Victory over death and the grave. Victory over sin and death and the law. Freedom from guilt and shame. No more condemnation. Healing for our body. By His stripes we are healed. Victory over strongholds and curses. Access to the presence of God and unity in the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let's eat and drink together with thankfulness in our hearts for all these blessings.